0: I don't do formal very well, so we're <laughs> just going to keep this uh, informal. And, and I invite uh, interruptions, I invite questions as we go along. I have a couple of points that I want to make. I want to go through this handout. But mostly, because we have, we have a little over, well over an hour, we can really let the conversation go where you need it to go as opposed to where I'm going to, I would try to impose it upon you. But I, I want to intro all of this by referencing the end of the bio, And I forgot exactly what the bio said, but uh, my focus is, is on perennial wisdom. And let me explain that term, and it'll help us go into my understanding of Judaism and my understanding of religion in general. So perennial wisdom is a set of four basic ideas that crop up in every religion throughout human history. doesn't matter what the religion is, there are always... And most of, them, most of the time, it's mystics. But there are always sages of a mystical bent that come up with the same four points. Now, they articulate it through their own religious language. So you're not going to hear uh, a, a Catholic mystic articulate these points using you know, Hindu terminology. Right? So they have their own way of, of languaging it. But the four points are always the same. So the, the four points of the perennial wisdom are, number one, everything that exists is a manifestation of one thing. So in Judaism, we'd call it God, and we have different names for God. But whatever name we're using, the idea is that everything is a manifestation of the divine, the one thing, whether it's Brahman or Tao or Dharmakaya or um, the Godhead, if you use Meister Eckhart in the Catholic tradition, whatever the languaging is, You and I and the table and the microphone I'm speaking into and the handout you've got and the carpet on the floor, everything that exists, good and bad and otherwise, is all a manifestation of a singular reality. The Hindu metaphor that is easiest, I think, to grasp with this is the metaphor of the ocean and the wave. So you think of God as an infinite ocean without bounds, and creation, nature, the, the world that you and I experience are waves, or is, waves of that ocean. And the wave is never other than the ocean, but the wave, no single wave is all of the ocean. So while God is all of you, as an individual you, where God is all of you, you are not all of God. That's point number one. Does that make sense? If I, I mean, you have to agree with it, but you get the idea? Point number two is you and I, human beings, have an intrinsic capacity to know this directly, Mm -hmm. not from a book, not from a teacher, you know it directly. Mm -hmm. And this intuitive, inherent insight that we have uh, allows us to, in in quotes, prove the first point. So the first point is everything is from the one thing, the second point is you really do know this. You have the capacity to know it you can know it intellectually you can know it emotionally you can know it through meditation you can know it through study there's lots of things you, ways of getting to know it but it's not something you have to believe in it's not taken on faith it's something you test and then you come to the conclusion that oh it's true you have the capacity to test this most religious claims you cannot test and we could say that god chose the jewish people but you can't prove that the only way the only text that proves it, is the Hebrew Bible. Well, that's an absurd proof, right? What's the Hebrew Bible going to say? And God chose the Hindu people, You know, it's not going to say that, right? Uh, if, I know we have some, some Catholic guests with us today. That's okay. You never go to a Catholic, you know, and I, I do a lot of work in Catholicism, I've never met a Catholic priest who came to the conclusion <laughs> that Krishna, rather than Christ, is the second person in the Holy Trinity, Right? your theology is based on your sociology. But the perennial wisdom is outside of that. So you you have to take the Trinity on faith. You have to take the chosen people on faith. But you can actually test, through contemplative practice, uh, the, the notion that we're all part of this one thing. So the first point, we're all part of the one thing. Second point, you know this, or you have the capacity to know this inherently. The third point is you also have the capacity to deny it. And the, the extent to which you know it is the extent to which you live in harmony with everything, and the extent to which you die it, I don't mean de- den- deny it, die it. <laughs> you know where my mind is. <laughs> I didn't have breakfast. But the, the extent to which you deny the oneness is the extent to which you feel alienated from other things, and it has an ethical component. When you feel connected, then your, your, uh, the, the ethics that guide your life are all basically love your neighbor as yourself. Whereas when you feel alienated, your worldview is, is zero sum. If I'm going to win, someone's got to lose. And, and that's how religion normally operates on a zero sum. Right? Jews are chosen, but nobody else. We try to get around that because we're embarrassed. But don't be embarrassed. Own the fact that you know, Jews love Jews. And that we say we're the best. I mean if you read the trope, rarely do you get a cantor who does the actual trope for the chosen people, but it says, you know, Amin, God chose us from all the peoples of the earth. Na 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 nah. that's the trope. Nah, 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 nah. Right. So it's got that too. Now we talk, oh that's not what it means. That is what it meant. Right? It's it's a marketing thing. Just like when Coca-Cola tells you it's the real thing, it's saying Pepsi is fake, Dr. Pepper is fake, don't drink those, drink the real thing. So it's just marketing. There's nothing wrong with it. Tribes do it, companies do it, so we just have to accept it. When Muslims talk about believers and infidels, when Christians talk about the saved and the damned, it's all marketing. And you only talk that way when you don't feel connected to everybody. When you feel connected to everything, there is no saved and damned. There's no chosen and not chosen. There's just God manifesting in infinite variety. That's point three. So there's an ethical component to the perennial wisdom. And point four is the reason you're here on the planet is to awake to the oneness and to live that ethic of, of loving your neighbor as yourself. So that's the, that's the perennial wisdom. That's what I care about. When Judaism teaches it, I'm Jewish. When Judaism doesn't, I'm in opposition. Right? I mean, I'm always Jewish, but you know what I'm saying? I celebrate when Judaism preaches or teaches the perennial wisdom, and I fight against it when it doesn't. I celebrate Catholicism when it does, Buddhism when it does, Hinduism when it does, Islam when it does, and I resist when it doesn't. So my religious beliefs are those four points. So you should know that as, as we go through all of this. Just uh, comments on that. Anyone have any questions on that before we, we move on? No, everyone's happy with that. <coughs>
1: Clarification. Yeah. You said uh, you dropped a little something in there about how uh, something about living, <coughs> when you live comfortably with it, when you accept it, life is comfortable.
0: No, no, not comfortable.
2: Harmony, harmony. In when, harmony.
0: when you live in harmony. In harmony. We, when, you, when you realize the truth that it's all one and you live in harmony with the oneness, you live more effectively, more lovingly, more graciously, more justly okay. than you do otherwise. But it's not comfortable. Okay. I mean, my, my favorite book of the Bible is Job. <laughs> right? And that's favorite is Ecclesiastes. No, comfort doesn't come into this at all. Uh, the traditional approach to Judaism is, you know, the, the traditional Judaism, conventional Jewish thinking, and this is true of all religions is do X get Y? And so in Judaism, whatever X is, and it changes over time. But you do what you're commanded to do, and God, it says in the Bible, over and over again, God will give you the rain in its proper season, and the crops will grow, and you have lots of kids, and you'll live into old age, and have a lot of joy, and Nachas and all that, blah, blah, blah. Then Job comes, the story of Job comes to say, oh, no, that isn't how it works. And when Job comes at the end of the book of Job, and Job demands that God show up, and tell you know what gives, then God says, "Look, I'm so far beyond your theological imagining that all of your questions are irrelevant when it comes to me. <laughs> Good and bad is a human thing, not a divine thing. I transcend all of that. I simply create the universe as it is, and you have to learn to live wisely in it. And the way you learn to live wisely in it is to feel a part of it, as opposed to apart from it. There was a hand there."
3: Can you say a little bit more about uh, that you don't have to take this on faith, it's testable? Just I don't want to take you off track, but just a little bit more about what
0: it. Yeah, so lucky for you, I have no track. <laughs> yeah, I can't lose my train of thought, because I'm not on a train. <laughs> that's why I always work with handouts. So what did he say? I don't know. I'll read the handout. Oh, that's what he was supposed to say. So I always have my fallback. But So, so the question is, how is it testable? Yeah. So every religion, but Judaism in <coughs> particular we're talking about, has numerous practices, spiritual practices, that take you into, that test this, this proposition that everything is part of one thing. So if you know other religious traditions, you're going to hear things that sound like those traditions, but these are from Judaism. So in, in, in uh, even in English, we now talk about mantra practice. Mm-hmm. In um, Judaism, it's got two names. One is Haggah. Which means to coo like a dove, and the idea is, you know, dove goes
3: coo coo,
0: and so you just repeat a, a, a phrase over and over again. And the other is called girushin, which means to divide, and the idea is you're separating yourself from delusion and seeing the reality as it really is. But the practice is finding a, a, a phrase or a word, but it's usually a phrase that you find that you consider holy, sacred. It's usually from the prayer book, it's usually you know, from the Siddur, it's usually from the Kumash, or, wherever you find it. So Reb Nachman of Bratislav taught uh, two, actually, Rabbanu Shalalam, literally, what, Master of the Universe? Mm-hmm. So he loved that, and you would say it over and over and over again, in the back of your head, you know, throughout the day, it's a, it's a mantra. So when you're sitting here and you're just listening, in the back of your mind, it should be saying, Rabbanu Shalalam, Rabbanu Shalom, Rabbanu Shalom." He also taught, I don't, I don't use Rabban Shalom, but uh, he also taught Harahman which I love. And I'll teach you that one. So Harahman means the compassionate one. <clears throat> and this one comes with a melody. So we can, we can try this, and if you know, it works for you, you can, you can continue to do it. So if you were kind enough to turn off your cell phones and you want to learn the melody, you could turn your cell phones on and hit the record button, or maybe one person can do it, and we'll put it on the... Uh, the website or however however it works. But here's the, um, I'll chant it uh, through four times, and then you join me and you'll you'll get it. The words are Ha-Rachaman, the compassionate one, and then Hare Hare, which means to see. So you want to be able to not, you're invoking the quality of compassion, and then you're seeing the world through the eyes of compassion. ha Ha-Rachaman. Hara ra hara man ha-ra-cha-man, hare hare, ha ra let us try that. Ha- Tradition, you should be reciting this in the back of your mind all the time. And if you read my book, Minyan, uh, which is where you get all these spiritual practices, uh, there's all kinds of quotes from different rabbis who say, you know, unless I inadvertently forgot, I've always done it all my life, and then I, if I notice I forget, I start it up again. So there's, there's, you know, people saying, look, sometimes you forget, but you can pick it up.
1: Can you just say again what the words mean?
0: Ha-Rahman, the compassionate one, from Rechem Womb. It's, it's all the spiritual talk in Judaism is feminine. Uh, and then Hare is to behold. So you're, oh, here, here's how it works for me. All right. Is it the
1: same yes. Hare from Hare Krishna?
0: No. Because <laughs> Hare, Hare, Hare Hare Krishna, Hare, Hare. yeah, that means Lord, Lord. Oh. <laughs> that stands, this is, Hare is to see. Is to, so um, uh, this is how it works for me. I am, and, and if you need more information on this, Rabbi Bonnie can help you out. I am an extreme J personality on the Myers-Briggs scale. (laughs) I am very time conscious. I don't like to waste my time. I don't like to have my time wasted. And my time is wasted most in lines. So if I'm in a buffet, like I go to, you know, we had a buffet thing here, and there's a long line, I won't eat until you're all because I just cannot stand waiting in line. I know, it's a okay, J, right? So I I go to... I would to but for example, here's... here's When, when my parents... My, my dad is, is deceased now, but when my parents uh, were both alive, they lived in Delray, Lakes of Delray in uh, Florida, and I would go and visit, and we always had to go shopping for different things. We, I think every day they went to the dollar store.
1: <laughs> my
0: mother always needed something at the dollar store. So it gets them out, right? So they drive to the dollar store, and we go in the dollar store. And when I would visit, they would make me stand in line with the thing that my mother wanted for the dollar store. And they would go wait in the car, with the air conditioning <laughs> So the last time I was there, I'm standing in line at the dollar store. Ever been to a dollar store? Yeah, oh, yeah. Everything in the dollar store costs a dollar. Uh, so I'm in line, and there's a couple people ahead of me. And the cashier stops and she says, Price check. (laughs) (laughs) And I go, It's a dollar store. It's a dollar. (laughs) She's annoyed with that. And and they have to wait. And someone has to come out, and they have to take the item. And what she needed was the serial number. She knew it was a dollar, but she needed some kind of code. So we had to wait. So while we're waiting, I'm fuming. My assumption is this is an act of anti-Semitism. That's always my assumption. You ever go to the bank, and then all the tellers go on break at the same time? I think it's anti semitism <laughs> In my town, I'm, I'm really the only one of the four Jews there. there. My wife, my, my son, you know, there's just a couple of us. And when you walk into the bank and the tellers think, I go, anti semitism <laughs> So this is an act of anti-Semitism, I thought. But anyway, I'm fuming about it. How stupid. A price check in a dollar start. And as I, the angrier I get, the more negative feelings come up about the cashier. Right. I, don't, I mean, she's just a cog in a stupid system, and she's really not at fault. But she's the only person I've got to yell at. So I'm getting more and more mad. And I'm, as I'm getting closer to getting to her, I'm ready to uh, let her have it. What kind of stupid system is this? So I'm sure no one else can relate to that. But that's just my personality. So what I do is I focus instead on Harakaman. Now I don't stand in line going "Oh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm not I'm not playing, you know, like a Broadway show. I'm doing it silently in my head. But I've been practicing this for, for decades, and it's sort of Pavlovian. As soon as I start a uh, focused hara haman, my breathing stops, slows, right? Because when you're when you're getting angry, you're constricting in your chest, and your breathing changes, and your heart rate's going up, and you're clenching your fist. And but as soon as I go. My breathing relaxes, my body unconstricts, my heart rate slows, my fists become open hands. And by the time I get to the cashier, I'm the loving self I prefer to be than the angry self I was a moment ago. And I can engage with her as an equal... And, you know, if, if you wanted to check my theology at the time, like I could say, of course, she's a manifestation of God. It's an I-thou encounter, Allah, Martin Buber, rather than an I-hit encounter. It's a non-zero uh, exchange where it's two equals, where winning means she's happy and I'm happy, as opposed to zero-sum, where winning means if I win, she loses, I get to yell at her, or she gets to make me wait for a price check because I'd have spite. <laughs> so, But all <laughs> of that goes away, because I'm chanting Harakaman. I feel and experience directly my connection to this woman who I despised a moment ago. So, you now, that's just a sort of practical example, and I use it all the time. But when you, when you chant this way on a regular basis, you start to feel the same way toward everything. <coughs> and, and I'm not perfect at this. Mosquitoes are still my enemy. <laughs> and, and there's one in your back. So <laughs> I tried my best to kill it, but I couldn't. Um, so that's how, there, there, so there's a way to test it. So there's mantra work contested. Sitting silently and doing silent meditation, uh, one of the ways Judaism teaches it is you use the Shema. And in Jewish med- silent meditation, you always repeat the text. In this case, it's the Shema. Starting on the in-breath, because God... In the creation of in Chapter Two of Genesis, breathes into Adam, the human, and then at your deathbed, according to tradition, God kisses you on the mouth and mm. takes your last breath into God. So God breathes out, and you are, and then God breathes in, and you are no longer. So you start with you breathe in Shema, you breathe out Adonai, you breathe in uh, you breathe out Israel, you breathe in Adonai, you breathe out um, Elohim. Shema Yisrael Adonai you breathe out Adonai And no, you breathe in Adonai again and you breathe out Echad so it, it, it works that way you start an in-breath you'll end on the out breath and you do this um, slowly and the length of time or space between the Echad and the next Shema in-breath slowly lengthens while you're doing this for let's say 20 minutes and it's a very slow process and what happens according to the Jewish mystics, is that, and, and really everybody else, but talking Jewishly, what happens is your sense of separate self dissolves into the, the one that is the divine, and you just know that everything is connected, and you're, you're connected to everything, everything is connected to you, and you just have that, that sense. Now you can, you know, if you're a scientist, you go, well, what is that? Is that just an affective thing? That's, that's no proof for me. So if you wanted to check it further, you go to someone like Andrew Newberg. Andrew Newberg is a nice reformed Jewish boy. Uh, well, he's, he's older than I am. Um, so a nice reformed Jewish man. and uh, he's a brain researcher at uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, right? University of Pennsylvania. And he writes all these books, "Why God Won't Go Away," "Your Brain on God," you know that kind of thing. And he wires people's brains when they're meditating and praying and doing all those things. And you can see how it's <coughs> affecting your brain. And what, I just had him on my radio show and, and he's very articulate. And he said, he said, when you're meditating, the part of the brain that's all about me cools down and the part of the brain that's all about us heats up. And, and that's what's happening in your, in your, in your consciousness. Is you, you are less about you and more about us and eventually, if you practice long enough, the idea is that you, you know, the I, the me disappears, and there's just us. But then you come back. I mean, otherwise, it's a psychotic break, and you're, you're in big trouble. So anyway, those are some examples. You can actually test this out, as opposed to theology, which you can't, can't test at all. Uh, anything else on the perennial wisdom?
2: Yeah. When's your radio show? <laughs> that's,
0: that's my perennial ego, not my perennial wisdom. Uh, I, I work for spirituality and health magazine. I write a column in every issue of the magazine. It's a, if you don't know the magazine, it's, it's a pretty nice uh, uh, print journal.
3: And you can get it online.
0: And, and you can get it online, uh, and I do a Q&A column every issue. People send me questions. You can always send me general spiritual questions. If, I, if they like them, I'll answer them, and you uh, can get it in the magazine. But on Fridays, they broadcast my weekly show. I interview people who are featured in, the month's issue, in that month's issue of the magazine. So I just, I just talked to Natalie Goldberg, the Zen Jewish writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I talked to Andrew Newberg just recently. I talked to, talk to whoever's in the magazine. So they set up these interviews. They're very short, but 20 minutes. You know, they're following the TED Talk model that after 18 minutes you're not paying attention. So the conversation's really 18 minutes. It's <coughs> the opening and closing commercial. And they, they don't care if you forget that as long as you listen to the guest so you can go to spirituality health spiritualityhealth.com and it's a free subscription to the podcast and they'll you know they download it right to your your phone okay so I'm going to move on Yeah. so the Judaism that I love is the Judaism that represents the perennial forestry. but there's more to the Judaism there's more to religion in general than just theology or just you know, just philosophy. There's, there's a you know, whole social dynamic to it. So my big question, I'm just going to put this to you first. My, my big question is, is Judaism an end or a means to an end? Is it an end unto itself or is it a means to something else? And, and the way you answer the question is really important. <coughs> And it it will determine the kind of, the the way you present Judaism and and the way way synagogues function, the way rabbis function, the way educators function. So what do you think? We'll just take a little bit. I mean, you know the difference, right? If it's an end unto itself, Judaism is the point of Judaism. If it's a means to something else, then Judaism is a tool for something else. There's something more important than Judaism. So what do you think?
4: I have a question about your question. Okay. Yeah. the audience. I was going to say yeah
0: Jewish, so, Jewish, audience. When, I mean...
4: you, when you say Judaism are you talking about rituals specific activities specific prayers i mean the things that we say and do that people say oh if you say and do it enough then you're going to ultimately feel it or blah, blah. i mean or? or or not i mean are you talking about the
0: well what is their I'm
4: asking what is when you say Judaism what talking are you talking about it?
0: Well, I mean, I, what, if we take away. The
4: formal religion. Yeah, the oh, religion, right? The, the religion
0: the of Judaism. So I mean, I, I think if it. I don't know what's left. If you take the prayer <laughs> and if you take all that out, if there's no holiday, no prayer, no. I don't know what's left. You can
2: take out the gefilte fish. <laughs>
0: well, then I quit. <laughs> you can You can take out the tongue, but not the. <laughs> But not No, but I'm talking about the religion itself, the stuff that we're that we're selling in the synagogue. Okay. So is, the, is is what we do in the synagogue an end unto itself or is it a means to something else? That, that's my question. So if you think it's an end, anyone wanna explain what they might mean by that, if you think it's an end unto itself? No? No no takers for the end then? So normally when I talk about this, people will say it's an end unto itself. The way the organi- the organized Jewish world is is basically organized with Judaism as an end. What do you want from your kids to be Jewish? Now you might say, well, they should be nice kids and all that. But what's the point of Jewish education to make them Jewish? Right. That's why you go to shul because you're a Jew. The idea of Judaism as an end in and of itself is based on the idea that you're born a Jew or you convert, right? But you you're somehow labeled Jewish, and there's an obligation that Jewish people have to do. And when you fulfill that obligation, then you've Reinforce your Jewishness, and it's a it's a circle. I'm a Jew, so I do X. I do X, whatever you know. It depends on what kind of Jew you are. It's kosher, it's not kosher. But I'm a Jew. I do X. I do X, and it reinforces my being a Jew. And it's a closed circle. The point of Judaism is to be Jewish. And if you go to uh, most rabbis I know, they're trained to make you more Jewish. Right? They're not. You go to a, a rabbi for spiritual direction. <coughs> um, I'm opposed to personally going to a rabbi for spiritual direction. I think it puts the rabbi in a horrible position. Uh, Spiritual direction is about helping someone discover own spiritual path mm-hmm. and if you're a rabbi and you talk to this person you realize, oh, you know, Hinduism would be perfect for this Jewish person mm-hmm. you're not going to go, oh, you know, I think you should go check out the Hare Krishnas or you should go check out the Vedanta Society, your local Vedanta Society and see what that's got to offer I mean, then, then the next thing you know this person says, oh, my rabbi <laughs> told me to be a Hindu and the next thing you know your rabbi is on the street, a little sign we'll work for kafil <laughs> <laughs> Because the rabbi's job is to make them <laughs> Jewish, not to make them happy or to make them spiritual, to make them Jewish. So spiritual direction, thanks. Spiritual direction is much more broad. So asking a rabbi for spiritual direction really puts a wrap. And this is obviously my thing, and, and yes, Bonnie wants to jump in here and, and disagree <laughs> with that. But, so go ahead, disagree. With
2: no, that. no, but I'm not disagreeing at all. I'm just surprised that you would get the answer that Judaism is an end unto itself. In a, in a non-Orthodox or maybe non-Orthodox and conservative environment, I mean, I'm kind of really happy that there are no takers on that. Because to me, the answer is so obvious that Judaism is a means that I, I, I'm getting a lot of nachas from the, the I, I'm the, also, yeah, the support yeah me of the too. Supporting this community. No, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. see, I temple see it science, as an Orthodox. But, you know, Judaism
4: as a way of life. This is it. That's an orthodox.
3: But but I, I, I think that I think that you know I don't know, maybe the orthodox the orthodox don't anyway, but all of these little things that they do are still mindfulness tricks, and that those things are supposed to bring you closer
1: to you know spirituality
0: if they're taken in the right way. Okay, so so I mean first I have to challenge Rabbi Bonnie's assumption that I don't speak to conservative and orthodox groups, <laughs> 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 but but. Even in re- generally speaking, when I do this, there's a lot of people who are on the liberal end who think it's an end unto itself. So, so I'm, I'm as you are happy that you know this, this is not there's no takers. As, as an end
3: or a be- it's a beginning. Mm-hmm. It's the beginning. No, it's not. It's not the word end in that sense, right? Okay. But but delving more into Judaism as a source also leads you to a better place into your responsibility to. Work. To the world um, be elected to the yes, nation. Well that, that's where we're going to go, yeah. Okay. That's,
0: where, that's where we're going to go. That, that's what I think too. Yeah. I mean, I don't endorse
3: it. I don't endorse the position that it's an end of itself, but I think we're, we're being a little disingenuous to say that that's not part of our common talk about Judaism. I know I was taught by my parents um, that it's your responsibility to keep Judaism going. Uh, and that is important. I was taught that probably more. I wasn't taught any uh, meditation strategies.
0: <laughs> no, uh, me either. <laughs> but
3: I was taught it's important for you to be Jewish and to raise your children as Jewish. And that does ring up. Yeah, that's, that's why itself. it comes up usually as an end. I mean, that's an end
0: in, unto itself. My, my, I, was raised, now I was raised in an Orthodox home. But there was no point to Judaism other than being Jewish. You didn't keep kosher for some... Bigger reason you kept kosher because God said keep kosher, and that's what Jews do. And you're a Jew, so you do it. <clears throat> but but there was there was never any uh, notion that this mattered beyond the Jewish stage, you know, the, the framework of Judaism. Yeah.
4: Okay, I'm struggling with the fact that your question says Judaism is Judaism the ends or the means, but yet we're talking about being Jewish, and I think that. Saying I'm Jewish is different than saying I celebrate Judaism.
0: Sure, that's why one-third of <clears throat> Unitarians are Jewish. Uh, probably, I'm joking obviously, but 98% of Buddhists are Jewish. <laughs> so, um, yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's a difference. You can just say you're Jewish and do nothing right. Jewish, right. <laughs> right? And that's the confusion of Judaism, right? Because mm-hmm. You can be culturally Jewish or just you know, I'm Jewish because my mother is Jewish. But honestly, I prefer atheism or mm-hmm. non-practice or some other religious practice. Yeah, no, but I'm talking about I, I, I'm talking about a Judaism with the practice. Yeah. So if I'm Jewish, I'm, and you, you're going to see where it goes if you haven't read this already, I don't think you can be Jew, Jewish without behavior. In fact, I behaviorally define Judaism. I do not define Judaism by blood or mm-hmm. conversion, or, I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff. My mother was a jewelry saleswoman, just because she, my mother was a jewelry saleswoman, doesn't mean I have the, the right or obligation to go to the jewelry store where she worked and become a salesperson there. Well, but my mother was a salesperson, so mm-hmm. I must be a salesperson. You know, I mean, it's absurd, sure. because my mother's Jewish, I'm Jewish. That's a, a conceit of tribal thinking, which I understand, but uh, it's not good enough for me. Because then you get people who say, I'm Jewish, and they don't do anything Jewish. So why well, say it? But that's, I mean, that's my total, I cop to this, a total bias. I'm behaviorally defining Judaism, which I will I'll do in a second. If Judaism is a means, which I think it is, and I think it, it was supposed to be, then Judaism matters in a way it doesn't matter otherwise. If Judaism is an end to itself, it doesn't really matter on the larger world <laughs> stage. But if it's a means, it matters, and matters crucially. Because my my one of my issues is, you know, why be Jewish? Why bother with any of this stuff if it doesn't really have a larger uh, impact?
2: So can I just interrupt you with, with two, um, I know you're also a student of Lorna McAdlin, so he has two, two quotes that I think are very relevant to this point. One is, he says... Uh, the meticulous observance of ritual is always a temptation to self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that, that, that speaks to the, the Judaism as the end unto itself. Mm-hmm. And he also says that being Jewish is an exemplary way of being human, which mm-hmm. I think speaks to the means. Yeah, yeah.
0: Or, or it can be if the means are defined that way, right? Because, I mean, I mean, all you got to do is read the Israeli press, or, or you know, read about, in the New York Times, what goes on in some parts of the, the Jewish world yeah. in New York, and you know that you can be the most from person in the world, and you're in jail for fraud or for sexual abuse. or for, so, so being observant is no guarantee of anything other than being observed. Mm-hmm. Uh, OK. So I think it's a means to something larger. And the larger thing, you know, if, if you know, I gave my elevator speech on, on Friday, I have another one you know, for the escalator. Uh, (laughs) And so my my elevator speech was, Judaism is the ancient, the Jewish people's ancient and ongoing struggle for teshuva and tikkun returning to God and godliness. You could take the one out of um, uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, to be a blessing unto all the families of the earth. That's why we're Jewish, Mm -hmm. not for Judaism's sake. But I think it, it, you know, and I think you make a, a good point. I think if we were a little bit more careful about looking at this, we'd see that a lot of what we do is for Judaism for Judaism's sake. Our Zionism is oftentimes for Zionism's sake.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, you can certainly understand that you needed a homeland after the Holocaust, or if we had it before the Holocaust, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust probably, nothing like that. Um, So you can see Jews may have needed, (coughs) may still need a, a safe haven. But Israel, for Israel's sake, only leads to fascism right, because it doesn't matter about anybody else. But if Israel is supposed to be a light unto the nations, if Israel is supposed to show uh, the ethical ideals of Judaism and to live those out, then Israel matters. And even if Israel fails to live up to its ideals, you still can support it because it's wrestling with those ideals. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just had this case where that soldier shot the Palestinian boy who's already on the ground, shot him in the head, He wasn't even involved in the thing. He shows up six minutes later and walks over and just shoots the guy. Now, that may or may not be horrendous. It depends on what the bigger story is, and you never know the whole story. So I'm not, I mean, to me, it looks awful. But what I want to comment on is he was arrested, Yeah. and they're debating it in the press, and they're going to charge him, and there's going to be a whole thing going on. He (coughs) may get off. That's almost, to me, and, and this is a little extreme, I guess, irrelevant it gets off mm-hmm. the fact that we didn't let it pass mm-hmm. now there's a huge mm-hmm. number of percentage of Israelis who just say yeah good for him we should do that with lots of people mm-hmm. but you know there's I mean they're Donald Trump supporters they probably go to his you know, rally. <laughs> so so so. but I'm not criticizing that I'm, I'm celebrating the fact that they are have not reached a point where morality is in is irrelevant yeah. so that where does that happen in you know Saudi Arabia it doesn't where does it happen in Egypt? You have a blog in Egypt that criticizes the Egyptian government. You find yourself blogging in the air in your jail cell. So, so it's, 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 always, it's never right to make a moral equivalency, because Israel is still struggling with these things. But if it was an end unto itself, and there are a lot of rabbis in Israel and right-wingers in Israel who would like it to be an end unto itself, then it's, it's, it's in terrible danger and becomes irrelevant. Yeah. And then
3: I I think the dichotomy doesn't sit well with me, um, and I said I don't endorse an end of itself, but I do think that there is a piece of that that is legitimate, um, and that is even in your own behavior. Uh, when I look for spirituality, I want to look in the Jewish text, and I want to, um, you know, find, <laughs> read you. <laughs> about, you know, Jewish approaches to meditation. There are many other approaches to meditation. So why don't I read Catholic meditation or Buddhist meditation? But
0: how is that an end in itself? It's, it's just well, a means. Choice
3: is... Because you're British, Jewish. Is, exactly. Yeah, exactly. but that's not an
0: end. If you're... No, the,
3: if, I, if I don't find it there, and I persist in saying it doesn't matter, then it's an end in itself. But there is a piece of my behavior that's driven by a recognition that I'm part of a long heritage. Right. And sure, I am
0: not I don't I I don't want to belabor the points so I want to get onto the handout but I don't see where that in any way contradicts what what I'm saying. I go to Judaism first too. I mean that's my mother tongue and that's that's what I do. But I'm not practicing Jewish meditation to become more Jewish. I'm practicing Jewish meditation to become more in touch with that ultimate reality, so I can be a blessing to all the families of the earth, mm-hmm. that, that it, it, the means are, is Judaism. I mean, that's I'm Jewish, so so that's what I'm going to do. But it's not an end unto itself for me, so I, I don't I don't see the dichotomy. But maybe I'm just I'm just I'm just missing. It. But I'm, I'm going to move on because we're I'm cognizant of the the clock here. So I put together this thing called Judaism Next. Uh, I, I think that that it. I mean, basically, just to be bold about it, if Judaism is an end unto itself, we're seeing the end of Judaism. Mm-hmm. So our school and the synagogue, the, the, you know, all of the stuff that we do, if we do it just to make Jews Jewish, I think we're missing a point. Judaism has to be for something greater. So this is what I think. This is how I think it works. And you may have heard this at services yesterday. Uh, though I didn't, I didn't know we were going to read it yesterday, we did. So, so this will be a rereading. But we're going to take it a little bit more slowly this time. So this is obviously my take, and I'm encouraging everyone to come up with their own, but this is, this is mine. Judaism calls for revolution, or it calls for nothing at all. Jews are or le goyim, a light unto the nations, or we are irrelevant. Our vision is of a fearless world without war. So Micah, this is, you know, people sit under a vine in their fig tree, and they don't study war. They don't batter their swords their plowshares. You know, that's the text there. Uh, a fearless world without war where people eat simply, drink moderately, work joyously, and love freely. So I put the love freely in there. In Ecclesiastes, he clearly says, eat, you know, drink, and, and find joy in your work. And then he talks about friendship. And the text is, I don't know if it's vague or not, but what he says is you should have at least one friend. Because if you fall down, who's going to help you get up? That's... I'm paraphrasing. That's almost a quote. But then he goes on and he says, how can you keep yourself warm in bed if you're sleeping alone? So all of a sudden, well, there's a friend who helps me stand up, and now I'm <laughs> sleeping with this person. <laughs> so that's interesting. I, you know, I don't know how my wife would feel about that, or actually how my friends would feel about that. But... So you don't know if he's talking about platonic friends, or maybe platonic friends and then love relationship. You, you don't know. But then he goes on and he says, you know, three people are even better than two. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's Ecclesiastes' version of big love. But, <laughs>
1: uh, uh,
0: so you don't know exactly what he's talking about, but I interpreted that to mean, uh, you know, bringing it into the 21st century, to love freely. So our path is the iconoclasm of Lech Lecha. So Lech Lecha is chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 1 where God calls to Abraham, and I always say it's Abraham and Sarah, and really to each human being or each Jewish person, because it's the beginning of Judaism, through them, and says, unfortunately in the JPS, go forth, which is a bad translation, you know, from your uh, country, your kin, and your uh, parents' house, <laughs> uh, to the place that I will show you. So the Hebrew is way more interesting. Lech, you no, know, lech lecha. lech does mean to walk. So, it is a journey. And in the story, they're going from place A to place B on a map. But, lacha means to yourself. Now, some people say go for your own sake, and that's how they understand it. But I'm just being a literalist here. It says go into yourself and get free from the idolatry of your nationality, your ethnicity, your parents, your gender, you know, all the stuff that is so frigging important on liberal college campuses that causes all the strife. Oh, you know, about all the ways we divide each other into the isms and ideologies and all these crazy things that we do. I'm suggesting that Genesis 12 says you have to get rid of all that if you want to see the place God's trying to show you. And I don't think it's the place, I don't think it's Israel. In the story, it's Israel. But in reality, my reality, God doesn't dabble in real estate. So it's not about Israel. It's about seeing reality as reality is. And reality is not broken up into these nice little, all the isms and ideologies that we fight about. And, and we love those things. We are addicted to those things. We are, we, they are our idols, right? all the different isms and ideologies to which we belong. I'm suggesting that Judaism challenges all of them. And that is the brilliance of Judaism. And we are the only religion that, that is willing to do that, theoretically. We don't do it, actually. We don't challenge our own stuff. We always challenge everybody else. But we do challenge. We do, actually. I shouldn't say that. It's a little harsh. We do challenge our own things, up to a point. Up to a point. But there's certain, certain idols we, we will not smash. But we could. We should, I would say. So freeing ourselves from the conditioning of nationality, tribe, parental bias, gender, race, class, religion, and every other narrative that keeps us from being a blessing to all the families of the earth, human and otherwise. So that's the general interest. Our pedagogy, the way we learn, is elu v'elu. So you, you know the story, it's, it's, it's Hillel and Shammai, and they're arguing about everything. And the rabbis say, elu Vray uh um, Elohim kain. thank you. So your opinion and your opinion are both the words of the living God. And this, I think, is unique to the Jewish, you know, Yiddish kappa, the Jewish psyche, <laughs> that we do not have a problem with paradox. We do not have a problem with disagreement. We do not uh, assume that my opinion is the only legitimate opinion. So I, in, in the just the way our texts are structured, we have everybody's opinion in the margins. You know, if you ever open a Talmud text, you've got the Little Mishnah and then a, the formal commentary and the Gomorrah. And then everybody's yelling about everybody else. And it's, you know, it stretches over centuries. And no one is wrong. Then the rabbis go, but the decision is always on the Hillel side. That's because Hillel is the compassionate of the two. He's the more compassionate. So all of these opinions are valid, but when we have to make a decision, let's decide on the side of compassion. So, I mean, I teach this pedagogy in non Jewish settings. I've taught to groups of pastors at national meetings and priests and I've been in India several times and and once specifically to talk about Eluva Eluva to thousands of Indians and hundreds of of, uh, Swamis. And people are so impressed, sometimes outraged, that Jews can have multiple opinions and no one is right or wrong. Because in other traditions, your salvation depends on having the right opinion. Or, if it's not your salvation, then... Your standing in the community depends on your having the right opinion. And our approach is different. Our, the more intelligent you are, the more con- contradictory, conflicting opinions you can hold in your head at the same time and not have your head boom, boom, burst. You know. that, that is unique to us. And that, uh, I was in India invited to speak um, what does Judaism bring to the world. And I didn't talk about God or anything else. I said, uve, this is what the world needs got lots of gods out there, but we don't have a lot of where we can have passionate, um, heated discussion. But in the end, we have to save everybody's opinion and say, well, I'm going to hold them all. I'm going to operate this way, but I'm not going to assume that any of these things are wrong. Now, the only caveat is that your opinion and your opinion are the words of the living God if they are offered with the intent of seeking out the truth. If they're offered to manipulate and exploit and take advantage of me by tricking me with, with fake facts and stuff like that, then your opinion doesn't matter. But the assumption is if you're, if the two of us, or the 20 of us, or the two million of us, are arguing a point to figure out what's right and we have difference of opinion, both sides, or all the sides of the argument, are the words of living it, it's, it, I think it's brilliant, it's ancient, the problem I have with today's Judaism is we're not teaching that way anymore. Yeah. We don't teach that way anymore. So, you, and Maybe some places they do, but mostly American education, Jewish and secular, is there's someone who knows, and they're going to tell you what you should know, and once you know it, you spit it back on the test, or you, you know, so we're not, we don't train our students to challenge the normative, which is what Elo and Elu 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 is all about. And and Jewishly, we can say, well, this is what the text says, or this is what the rabbi said, and move on. But what we want to do is to train our kids to smash our idols. And I mentioned that to the B'nai Mitzvah group that was at services yesterday, and they were too busy texting to notice that I was talking to them. But but my hope was that somebody would go, Really? I, I, let's, let's, I, can, I can do that. I have another opinion. So I'll give you a, a wonderful example of how this used to work. I don't know if it still does. Reb Zalman uh, Shakhtar Shalomi is, is our Rebbe. And when he came over as a teenager from uh, Europe, escaping the Nazis, he's in New York, and he's walking along the street. And it's obviously pre-air-conditioned days. And he's walking by yeshiva, and the windows are open, and he hears a teacher talking to some... Twelve-year-olds, or wherever it is, and he hears what the guy is saying. And the Holocaust is going on. And Zalman is I what sixteen or seventeen, I think, when he comes here. He's absolutely incensed, and he's he bursts into he goes into the yeshiva, he bursts into the classroom, and he starts screaming at the rabbi, and telling him how wrong he is, how stupid this is, don't you know what's going on in the world? He's going on and on and on, challenging belief in God and all this other stuff, and the kids are yelling at him at Zalman, shut him up, You know, shut up, shut up, and tell the rabbi, shut him up. We don't want to hear this. And the rabbi keeps saying, shut, oh, shut, let's listen, hear him out, hear him out. So Zalman exhausts himself, and then the, the rabbi, the rabbi says to him, you know, there are <coughs> all these famous Jewish sages who said exactly what you said. You should read, and he starts giving him source material. And Zalman is... Turned around, and he says, "I can actually be angrily Jewish at the moment. Mm-hmm. Here. Wow. I can I can be the angry adolescent and be deeply Jewish. I just never heard these texts before." And that's when he starts to enter into the Chabad world from the I forget where it was, another Hasidic, another Hasidic thing. So I don't know if that would still happen. I don't know if that would still happen. But <clears throat> argument as the core of what we're about. <clears throat> is essential.
2: Argument is an end
0: unto itself. Argument is a means to, to, to exploring the truth, and recognizing the truth is multifaceted. Um, but what we've got is the opposite. We have um, what, what I call here manufactured consent as an end of itself. We should all just agree to this and then we can get along, and you know, and, it, and, and I don't think that's the way it used to work or should work.
4: So if you follow the pedagogy of Eluva Elu, and you smash um, idols, and you into yourself, mm-hmm. into that deep awakening, does that bring you to that first of your perennial wisdoms? I, I say of yes, the oneness?
0: that's what I would say.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you,
0: that's what I would say. So um, so our pedagogy is Elu honoring argument, doubt, and critical thinking <coughs> over intellectual passivity, spiritual conformity and manufactured consent. So, still that's pretty much theoretical. Now I go into my behavioral definition of what's a Jew. Now, this always gets me in trouble, so, you know, it's just my opinion. Don't don't get upset. But I don't think you can be Jewish. Of course you can be Jewish. Your parents are Jewish. I don't think you can be seriously Jewish and not do Shabbat and Kashrut and a couple of other things. How you define these, though, is not up to me. The big mistake that uh, reform made a few years ago, more than a few, it was called the Cheeseburger Rebellion. Anyone ever hear that phrase? Cheeseburger Rebellion. It's a bunch of rabbis got together and said, You know, Jews ought to keep kosher. And they sent it out to their congregations. Teach your congregations they should keep kosher. But they never gave you a new understanding of kosher. The only kosher you had was the kosher of your great, great, great grandparents. And, you know, the Jews are having their bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich on you know, Yom Kippur afternoon and you're suddenly telling them, no, you can't have this. And they, were, they used cheeseburger. You know, and it was basically sort of think of, of um, oh, gosh, what was his name? You know, Pulled his gun out of my cold, dead hand. Oh, uh, House. Clinton, No, not this what Charlton. Have, Charlton Heston. You have to think of oh. a Charlton Heston oh, moment right, right, where right, the lay right, people right. saying, you know, you, you have to pry this cheeseburger out of my cold, dead hand. And it went nowhere. It went nowhere. But the problem wasn't the rabbis knowing that the, the, the seeing the importance of kashrut, importance of kashrut. The problem was they didn't have a kashrut for the 20th century. It's happened in the 20th century. They just gave them the medieval kashrut and said you should do this. Well, nobody wants to do that. I don't want to do that. I think kashrut in the old way of doing kashrut is really cruel, and and it, it's got terrible things in it. The fact that you can eat veal. And veal, the fact that veal is kosher means that kashrut, as my parents understood it, is morally bankrupt. And I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, or a 10-foot Lithuanian, if I knew So.
1: <laughs> what uh, is a way to be kosher, contemporaneously? So, yes,
0: thank you very much. But <laughs> the second way. So I argue that, you know, I skip, we'll skip Shabbat. We can come back to it. Um, that Kashut is elevating, manufacturing, and consuming to the highest ethical and environmental standards. This is way more difficult than separating milk, <laughs> milk and meat. I, mean, I don't know where you are on the meat-eating scale. Uh, I, I am a follower of uh, Isaac Bajvez Singer, who, you know, the Yiddish writer, who said, to cows, I am Gandhi, because he was a didn't meat, meat. To cows, I am Gandhi. To fish, I am Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I fall in that school of eating, but my point has yeah, no, isn't it great? My point isn't whether you be a vegetarian or what kind of vegetarian or a pescatarian or a vegan. That's all up to you as an individual. My pro, my my challenge is you can't eat mindlessly in Judaism. If you're going to be Jewish, if you're going to say you're Jewish. Then it has to extend. In, in this case, we're talking to, to eating. But not just the food; all consumption, all things. So for me, that means what kind of car I drive, what kind of clothes I wear, what you know, what number iPhone I have. <laughs> um, and and all of these things have a moral component. So you know, if you, if you look at the Kashrut rulings, we always focus on, on meat and milk. But if you look at the rules around Kashrut, it's how you treat the animals, how you treat the workers, you know, all this kind of stuff, and uh, we have rules against wanton waste of nature. So that brings in the whole environmental thing under the Kyushu frame. And, and I wrestle with this all the time because I want the iPhone. But I know it's made by people in China who probably you know, who were committing suicide until Apple made them put a net. So they only commit, you know, I don't know what you call it, neticide. And they, they fall into a net and they don't die. Uh, do I want to buy a product that, that does that? Do I want to buy a product that, that has child labor involved. Then, yeah. of course, the pushback is, wait, these <laughs> people have, you know, the, 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 in the old days, everybody worked, and you went, if you are a kid, and you also worked, and you brought home, money home for your family, so there's, there's, I'm not saying there's a right and there's a wrong in, in a lot of this stuff. It's the wrestling with it that I'm saying is Jewish. Mm-hmm. You just can't eat. You have to wrestle with this stuff. You just mm-hmm. can't buy clothes. You have to wrestle with this stuff. And to me, what would tie us together would not be, oh, you keep kosher or you don't keep kosher. How do you keep kosher? Mm-hmm. I, I could see these conferences like of, forget denominations, it. we're all struggling <laughs> with kosher. And the <laughs> issue is, how do you do it?
1: <laughs> we well, you know, I
0: belong to this. When I had a show, we had, um, I forget what it was called. But every bulletin had your kosher, you can't wear Nikes now. Because oh, they were, okay. you know, back when Nike was, was sweatshop labor. Nikes aren't kosher, we would say in our bulletin. and then. We, have, we ultimately had to stop because somebody had to focus because Nike changed its policies and suddenly Nike was kosher again. So you know, we would say it's not kosher and then we would forget to tell you when it was. So we had to finally stop you know, doing that. But the idea would be we would come together and you would say, okay, this is how I do it. And I might learn from the way you do it as opposed to what is it, you know, defining it for all of us. You get what I'm, what I'm saying? It goes back to that whole argument thing. There, there was a hand.
3: Yeah, um, Zalman wrote a book called Integral Halacha, Mm. and he talked about Kashrut in much the same way you're talking about Kashrut. And he also talked about a concept called backwards compatible, where he's saying we need to look forward and sort of add things to what we mean by Kashrut, but our decisions about what are in the future also have to be backward compatible, in other words, have to include the things that were there before. Yeah. So How do you interpret that? Because I'm not sure he meant it fully. Yeah. Does I don't know way? if he
0: meant it that way or not, but I, I if he did, I would say, I, I don't buy it. Right? There's no way to make veal kosher in my head. There's just no way to do it. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I would say in terms of the backwards compatibility, how far backwards are we going to go? And I, I think that... If you look at the Torah's definition of Kashrut, although it would allow for eating veal, and I, I, I completely agree with you that I don't eat veal e- either, there's a lot of uh, human accretions to what is Kashrut between, if we go backwards to the Torah, to what Kashrut has evolved into now. So uh, when I look at the Kashrut, I think about, you know, what was the intent of the framer in the in the Torah, and you know, I like the way you have. Eat eats simply, and you know, getting ready for Pesach. So when you think about what kosher for Passover has become, I mean that really is the lesson in simple eating, in the in the the Torah. Not that you need to have a kosher for Passover uh, soda and ice cream and pretzels. It's like how can you get back to the idea of eating simply for a week? Mm-hmm.
0: So, and then of course you know, kosher today is is entirely monetized and political mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's all it's all nonsense when I, when I lived in Miami a member of my Congregation opened up a he realized that on south on Miami Beach where it was very orthodox on Miami Beach There was no car wash and you know if you live in Miami the salt and, I mean you got to wash your car regularly. And there was no car wash So you had to go into the, the city so he opened up a car wash. and It was hugely successful and but people then were in like in lines So he said, well, what am I going to do with them in line? So I'm going to open up a little kiosk for food. (laughs) And because it's an Orthodox-dominated area, he said, I'm going to make sure it's kosher. I don't want to offer a lot of food. He said, donuts. I'm going to offer kosher donuts and coffee. So he went on, this may have simply been an excuse to go on a donut-eating spree. (laughs) (laughs) He went throughout Miami-Dade and then Broward County eating all the kosher donuts And he found what he thought was the best donut in South Florida. And it was from Broward County. And he started selling them out of his little kiosk in the car wash. And the uh, Miami Beach kosher police came. And they said, you're serving non-kosher donuts, but you're claiming they're kosher. And he says, oh, no, no. And he pulls out the Hecksher, you know, the certificate. He says, look, they're kosher. And they said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Kosher <laughs> <laughs> they're kosher in Broward County. They're not kosher in Miami-Dade. And you know the answer is you have to pay us, and then they'll be kosher in Miami-Dade. So he stopped doing the food thing. He he just gave it up altogether. But but that's you know that, that's that's not what we're talking about, right? That's not what we're talking about. So we're going to run out of time, and I'm just going to quickly go through the rest of these things. So I think Shabbat, you have to do Shabbat. What you do on Shabbat, I don't care. One of the things I would suggest, because I'm not a synagogue goer anymore unless I'm invited to a show like this and the services were beautiful, but living in Nashville, or I don't live in Nashville, but to drive uh, an hour to show where I live in Tennessee to the shuls in Nashville, which are the only shuls we have, to be aggravated for another two hours and then drive home for another hour fuming about the whole thing, my shabbat is ruined. So I don't go. I don't go. I mean, if I want to be aggravated, I'll watch Fox News. and all <laughs> so, so I don't go to synagogue on Shabbat. I, I have my own ritual, I and mean, I study Torah, and I do all that stuff. But anyway, I've made up my own thing, and that's how it works for me. But I think you have to do something with Saturday. You just can't ignore it. But I don't have an opinion as to what you should do. One of the things, though, having said that, I do have an opinion. <laughs> if Shabbat is really going to be a break with the work week, <clears throat> I suggest the thing that is missing from our culture that Shabbat would revolutionize is play. Not competition, not football and you know who wins and loses, but what used to be called new games or non-cooperative games. When I was at HUC, I convinced you yourself. The, oh yes, I am I'm sixty-five years old. When I was at HUC in the 70s, new games were really popular, and I convinced the administration, my friend and I did this to send us for basic and advanced New Games training. So New Games, it's called, uh, their motto is, play hard, play fair, nobody hurt. And they're non-competitive games. So this is an example. One of them is you have this giant parachute, and you get everybody in a circle, and you put balls in the parachute, and you try to see how high, as a community, you can get the balls to go without letting the balls fall out of the parachute circle. And it's way fun, and everyone has a great time. And I used the skills I learned there throughout my 20 years in the synagogue. We had Jewish, we had Jew games. For every holiday, I adapted the new games, and, and it was so much fun. And if you know, you're, you're somewhat handicapped, you can play the games. It's, it's hard to find someone who can't play. Um, but even if you weren't talking about that, not, I, I, I'm talking about games without winners and losers, but play is missing <coughs> from our lives. I mean, you used to play Little League for fun. You don't play Little League for fun anymore. It's business. Uh, all you got to do is see the parents at a little league game I mean. and it's, it's baseball it's soccer whatever it is I mean now football and the concussions and all this stuff what, what I would I'd love to see a Shabbat you know Tai Chi afternoon <laughs> Qigong afternoon Yoga afternoon um, I mean I would like to see that you know what we teach in our schools in our public schools we teach competitive sports that only a few people can do We took play away from most children yeah, and, and it's, or you can do that, but, but I remember growing up and you know, you're picked for the dodgeball thing, and you're picked for this, and I was never picked first because I'm the loser of the group physically. And, and whatever you learned, whatever I learned, gymnastics, I mean, you can't do that after you're 13 or whatever it is. You know, so I, those are, I never learned anything that was of value to me. But if they taught me yoga, if they taught me Tai Chi, if they taught me things that I could grow into, Shabbat as a day, because I'm, I'm picking on Tai Chi because we used to go. In Miami, even when I lived in Miami, my son and I did Tai Chi in a park with a Chinese Tai Chi teacher every Shabbos afternoon. So to me, that was just a, a real revolutionary Shabbos thing to do. So play would be something that I would, that I would consider when I get through the rest of these things. Uh, so Shabbat, we talked about Kashrut. Tzedakah, I think Jews have got to, give tzedakah, have got to wrestle with Sadaka and I'm defining it not as charity, which is something else, but the just use of money and capital. How do you earn your money? How do you use your money? In time. Uh, yes, you can, you can say time too, but I'm actually, and I, and I know we always do that, people don't have money, they'll donate their time, but I'm actually really concerned with money.
2: Yeah, I, I would argue that that's and that the tradition specifically differentiates between staka and giving
0: Yeah, which is the next one. Yeah, I'm really talking about money, because... Because money is so crucial to the way you know our society, um, so Jews have to be cognizant of earning it ethically and using it ethically. Mm-hmm. Then Chesed, loving kindness, the, the time issue, gimilut Chesedim, acts of loving kindness. We've got to practice those. Now everyone does them already. So one of the things that I think we have to do is to label what we do differently, rather than you know I'm I'm being helpful. No, I'm doing an act of gimilut. If we could just Jewishly tag a lot of the stuff we already do, we would discover we're already way more engaged in this than we might ordinarily think. <coughs> and most of these things I'm not adding on, I'm simply renaming what you already do. Shmirat um, HaLashon is one of my favorite Jewish practices. <laughs> you know, cleaning up your speech. You know, don't gossip, don't slander, don't, you know, no, no lying, no distortion of truth. So, you know, everyone, oh, you lie. Everyone lies, I get it. Th- that's the least of the things I'm worried about. I'm more worried about the more subtle distortions of truth that we'd use in order to get your votes, or whatever, that kind of thing. And, and just to be aware of the quality of our speech, there used to be uh, the Chofetz Chaim Society. I don't know if there's still a foundation, Chofetz Chaim Foundation. Chofetz Chaim was this guy uh, in the 17, 1800s, who was really involved in uh, Lashon hara stuff. Really thought this was the essential thing to work on, and you could call up a nine hundred number. This is so brilliant. They had a battery of Musar rabbis who were Chafetz Chaim students, uh, and you call them up and you get, you know, rabbis are waiting for your call, out One nine hundred blah blah whatever it was, and you say, Rabbi, here's the deal. A friend of mine is gonna take a job. I know that the job <laughs> is crooked. Should I? say something, should I not say something, what do I do, and is it Lashon to say something, or, or maybe <coughs> just take the job, can I say it now, these are things that are in the Talmud, they're arguing in the Talmud, what, you know, these kinds of things, but we don't have the capacity necessarily as individuals to look it up in the Talmud, so you call 1-900 uh, from time, and these guys are like, okay, let's talk about it, and they'll work it out with you, and if they'll come to a decision, you can do what you want, but they'll say, no, you can't say anything, or yes, you should say something and say it this way, and you have this amazing, you know, Chaim rabbi on the, you know, on your fingertips. I don't think they still do that. We need an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> Any app developers in the, the room? <laughs> we need an app for that. So I, I am running out of time. So let me try to go little bit faster So brachot, expressing gratitude. You know, tradition says you say hundred brachot a day. So there are. You can get lists of them, and it tells you which one or what they are. But I don't. I don't worry about that. I think you're looking for a hundred times a day to say thanks. Thanks to another human being. Thanks to nature. Thanks. I don't mean a generic thanks. Oh, thanks, God. I got to see a bunny this morning. We went to the Playboy Club for breakfast. So... You already
2: said you didn't have breakfast. Oh. I get (laughs) it. For the record, it wasn't because I did not
0: breakfast. No. But there was a bunny, though. There was a bunny. yeah, the mosquito lived, the bunny was in the bank. We didn't have rabbit, whatever whatever that is. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying the, the, the generic ones, but to, to go through your day looking for all the places you have been gifted. I've got a retreat coming up in a couple months where it's a three-day thing, and we're looking at, almost exclusively, we're looking at paying attention to where you're being gifted, and we, we start when you're, in your earlier life, and uh, we ask questions like, what did your mom do for you when you were six? Because you know, we start way back. And then what did you do for your mom that was purely altruistic? And what trouble did you cause your mom? And so you make lists, and you realize that your mother did all these things for you, and you hardly did anything that was really <laughs> altruistic. And then you caused her way more problems than you can imagine. And you realize that you're not, you're not really uh, paying back you know, what, what you owe. And you start to, to look around, and you look for uh, places you're being gifted, and it's, it's animate things, inanimate things, and then you develop ways of engaging with life that tries to pay that, uh, that eternal debt forward.
2: So I don't know if you noticed the quote in my, uh, in my email, or I mean, if you got it from my home computer, it's from Zellin Pliskin's book, thank you. What could you be grateful for right now if you were grateful for something?
0: Yeah, right. And do that a hundred times a day. And I, and I um, this, this piece that I'm talking about, I, I learned it. It's a whole thing in Japan, in Japan coming out of Buddhism <clears throat> that I was trained in. And one of the tests, you walk into a room and there's a faucet that's just on a little bit and just goes, you know, drip, drip, mm-hmm. drip. And the, the master wants to see if you notice it and then what do you do about it and why. So I notice it and I go over and I turn it off. And then the question, okay, why did you do that? And you could say it's a waste of water, right? But that's not what he wants. He wants you to say, the faucet has been serving me, you know, for, for all this time, and I want to honor it by saying thank you, by making helping it function the way it really needs to function. And that means turning it on. So even to the sink, you know, to have, to have gratitude. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So uh, Limud, study. I don't think you can be a serious Jew and not study Jewish texts. No, I, I, I mean, I... I'm addicted to them, so I can't help it, but studying you know, ancient texts in terms of timeless wisdom. And that is very different than what I called the other day, salvaging Torah. Right? There's stuff in Torah that sucks, don't bother with it. <laughs> you know, I, I, when I had, I had a shul, I had 52 readings of the Torah, not the Parshiot parash, that, that are, are assigned. So yes. that if you had if you had a bar about mitzvah, you never got the leprosy one. You never got Pinkus committing double homicide because two people fell in love. But wait, you but never, if you
2: never got leprosy, then you never got to talk about leprosy as understood as a manifestation as a punishment for lashon and hara, and then you could address the lashon hara in You could you could do that,
0: and I would do that in an adult Torah study, but not with the kids. With the kids, I wanted positive things that I didn't have to twist into something positive when they weren't. So that's just the way I did it. It was a compromise because my original my original intent was to take a large magic marker and simply block out everything (laughs) in the Torah that that I didn't like. But then when I realized how expensive the scroll was I had to think think (coughs) differently. Yeah that was the idea. (laughs) It didn't go over well with my voice. So but not, not studying Torah for Torah's sake, even though we say you know, uh, that we study for Torah's sake. Studying Torah for, the, for, the, for wisdom's sake. And that means reading books that we don't ordinarily read, like well, in Torah we do, so it's the prophets. But um, Ecclesiastes and, and Job and, and books like that, the, the books that are from the wisdom tradition. Judaism has, uh, though we don't always own them, but book of Proverbs, the uh, book of Job, book of Ecclesiastes, Book of uh, Sirach, Wisdom of uh, uh, Ben Sirach, and the Wisdom of Solomon. And the Sirach and Solomon were written by Jews in Alexandria, probably. They were written in maybe in Hebrew, but we only have Greek translations left. And they were quoted by the rabbis, they were beloved by the rabbis, but they were never put into the Tanakh. But I don't care. So it's like if you're, when I teach in, in Christian settings, I don't mind going beyond the canonical Gospels, and I read the <coughs> Gospel of Thomas and some of the other things, and, and watch the Da Vinci Code. So, um, <laughs> so there are more books than, than, you, might, than you might think that we're, you know, that we're talking about here. But you're reading, and you're looking for wisdom. <coughs> you're not looking to understand Torah, as you might in a regular uh, Torah study session. Uh, and then tefillah, Prayer. And the purpose for me of, for prayer is to reveal the ehhia, when God says, you know, God speaks of God's self as ehhia, asher ehhia, the eye that is eternally eyeing. And that takes us back to where we started. Everything is a part of one thing, but it's not uh, dead. The one thing is, in fact, the eternal eye, the eye behind, the eye thou, that kind of thing. And you can, uh, through prayer or meditation or whatever, you can actually slip into that level of consciousness and realize moving beyond I am a part of God to the realization that Ani Adonai, I, I am God. Not all of God, but actually in that sense, you really are the, the, the divine beyond, beyond limits. So you know, that's just my mystical shtick. Uh, a, Jew, a Jew is a person. Here's my definition of who's a Jew. A Jew is a person who shares, now I'm saying our, but it's the values here. A Jew is a person who shares these value, vision, values, and vehicles for change, not our blood. I don't care if you're born Jewish. It, it means nothing to me if you don't do something Jewish. If, if you're not interested in anything, and this goes back to your question earlier, if you're not interested in Judaism at all, being Jewish is irrelevant to me. Irrelevant. Now you can say secular Zionism and all kinds of stuff, and I can, I can be massaged into being a little less strict. But, uh, my, my, no, I'm, I'm an American. I'm not an Israeli. I could be an Israeli. I, I, I'm always questioning Thank the Zionist. notion that I'm a Zionist, but I live in Tennessee. Zionists live in Zion. I'm a Czechist. I write, I send money, right? So, so I, my Zionism only extends uh, to, to the level of, of making a donation and maybe going to visit but no way in hell am I actually living under the theocratic control of the Orthodox establishment. It's not happening to me. And, and I, I, I just can't deal with that. So I support Israel to the extent I support Israel. But I don't know if you really can call me a Zionist. So I'm not really looking at that direction. I'm looking at American Jews. That's who I'm interested in. And just because you're, you have Jewish parentage means nothing to me. No, I know Hitler said, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want Hitler to decide he's a <laughs> So <clears throat> to me, it's behavior. I don't even care about conversion. When I, when I was a rabbi in the congregation, and people wanted to convert, which they did once in a while. I would say, "Here's what you do: you live as a Jew for a year, as I'm defining Jewish. You live as a Jew for a year, and then we'll talk." And and when they did that, at the end of the year, I said, "Well, you can't get more Jewish than you already are." Muffled though. Hey. So that was it, because it's behavior. behavior. Um, So let us teach our children to invent the future and not preserve a frozen and romanticized past. If we are not about tomorrow, we will find that we have none. All right.